listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw. I'm your friendly guitar scientist, almost 25 years of experience building and repairing guitars. As you may have guessed, this is a podcast about guitar repair, guitar building, guitar news, guitar science, even guitar opinions. Sitting beside me is my lovely wife and co-host, Melissa. This is a question and answer episode where we respond to listener-submitted emails and calls. I will read the questions and Eric will try to answer them. We've got some good questions. Questions about tube amp kits, uh, fingerboard oil, um, finishes, all kinds of good things. Fretting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We've even got a few questions for you about leather. Wow, I just cannot wait. It's turning into like a guitar and leather podcast. I hope not. Let's just rename it the guitar and leather podcast. <laughs> As if we're not already too niche, right. you know? Right. We need to further yep. dissect our audience into Let me ask you a, a question. smaller group. Yes. At what point do you stop saying over 20 years and you, you keep hinting at 25? When When is the 25 year mark? I don't mark? know. Well, it's interesting that you should ask that because I was trying to figure this out the other day and I can't figure out when it was that I started repairing and building guitars if there was like a day, you know? Well, it's something that I was interested in. I was taking guitars apart since I, I was eight years old. Right. Yeah, but I wouldn't call that. No. Luther, luthier Luthery. Um, That's not exactly luthery. Right. When, uh, when You started a local music shop here in town. In the 90s. And what year was that? I can't remember. You just don't know. Uh, I'm going to guess 94, 96, somewhere in there. Okay. So it's pretty much already 25 years. Is it? Is it then? Well, here's the other thing about it, though. When I started there, I was doing uh, shipping. I was a shipping clerk oh, for a year. Okay. And then I moved into the quality control department where I was working on guitars. Oh. And then I worked into the repair department. Oh. But I was, you know, in like junior high, all the other kids that played guitar knew that, oh, Eric can probably fix this. I was working on my friend's guitars. You have always been the exact same person that you are today. Yeah, pretty much. It's true. Let so, me, I don't know. A long time. Yeah. Let me ask you another question. That, that's why it's so hard to pinpoint a year. 
because it's been your whole life. Yeah. Go ahead. What's your question? What's on your bench? Uh, A lot of things. I just finished up another custom guitar. Whoa. And while I was finishing that up, I got a phone call for another custom order. So they just keep coming and going. keep coming. I think I have uh, eight guitars I need to make in the next two or three months. Cool. Yeah, it's good. Anything real off the wall or interesting? I've been doing a lot of pretty run-of-the-mill repairs, you know, uh, pickup swaps, and there's a few broken headstocks here and there, and, you know, nothing nothing out of the ordinary that, that stands out to me. Cool. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm not working on. Uh-oh. Ukuleles, mandolins. Banjos? Banjos, that's correct. Lutes? No lutes. I have a customer who's a great guy. I love this guy. and I've known him for years. Great guitar player. Really cool, gregarious, you know, boisterous guy. Uh-huh. Fun to talk to. But he likes ukuleles. Well, <laughs> here's the problem. So now you can't hang out yeah. with him? <laughs> no, what I'm saying is I work on his guitars, and it's great, and I oh, like him, and I like his guitars. He wants to bring I me see. ukuleles, and I draw the line... Just because I have to, I can't. I can work on mandolins and ukuleles. I, I have the tools. I ha- you know, it's not that big of a difference. The thing about it is that it's just that that's where I draw the line. I I don't want to work on them. Right. If if I were starving for business, then yes, I would work on your ukulele. But I I'm, I'm kind of uh, like busy. So I have. I'm trying to tactfully say this. I don't want to work on ukuleles, so uh, that's where I draw the line. So uh, he he talked me into. He twisted my arm. Said, oh Here, no! I've got this ukulele. Will you please work on it? I said, Bruce, I I just don't want to. I don't want to work on ukuleles. You see, here's all the guitars that I need to repair. Here's the list of custom ordered guitars that I need to make. My plate is full with stuff that I want to do. I just have no passion for ukuleles and mandolins and banjos. So uh, I'd rather not. Thank you for, you know, the business. And I'll fix any guitar you want, but please, no ukuleles. Well, he talked me into it, so he left it with me. And there it sat for a week or two. And then he called me up and said, hey... My buddy who builds ukuleles hap- just happens to be in town. And would you be offended if I come and get that so that he can do the work? I said, offended? I would be delighted. <laughs> Please come get this ukulele. I told you I don't want to work on it. Anyway, that's my story. It wasn't very interesting. That's fascinating. Here's what else I'm, I'm interested in. I, now, I don't know how it's possible that I didn't know these existed, but I'm holding in my hand Uh-oh. a vintage 10-ma LCR meter. Do you know what an LCR meter is? I don't know any of those words you just it's said. A, it's a lot like a volt-ohm meter, but I... instead of volts uh-huh. and ohms, well, I guess it does ohms. It Excuse does. me, I had to go reach something. Uh, LCR stands for... Well, L stands for inductance for some reason. Okay. C is capacitance. Okay. And R is resistance. So this little this little meter that I'm holding uh-huh. 
you can take a capacitor, uh-huh. hook it up to the terminals, uh-huh. and it will measure the capacitance. And an ohm meter won't do that? A typical ohm meter will not do that. Wow. And so if you turn it on here, uh, I'm going to have you hook that up. Hook that up to the leads. That's a, that should be a .047 orange drop capacitor. Do you, I, I just... Just hook it up to those leads. Oh, my gosh. What does it say? .048. It's pretty close. .048. And this is supposed to be a .047? .047. So... That's helpful if you drop your well, box of capacitors. And here's my problem. Uh, a lot of times... I have an old capacitor that you can't read the uh you can't read the markings on it. Uh-huh. Or you have a you have a capacitor that you need to test it and see if it works or not. Right. Or you have like I bought that uh reel to reel and pulled out all the old capacitors out of it. Uh-huh. And now I have a box of capacitors and they're mostly bumblebee capacitors. And they have instead of markings, they have colored stripes. And so you're supposed to get some little or- Orphan Annie decoder ring and figure out by the colors of the stripes what value the capacitor right, is. But well, now you don't have now to. Now I can just hook it up to my handy dandy 10 ma yeah. vintage. You can make your own Orphan Annie decoder ring. Vintage made in Taiwan LCR meter. Now, sir, where did you purchase this here? This was an eBay device. purchase. Cool. I thought you weren't going to do eBay anymore. Oh, yeah, that's right. I <laughs> bought it on an auction site online. <laughs> One hey, of those online auction this sites. This has been real interesting, but should we get to some questions? Oh, are we doing a show? Yeah. All right, sure. Do yeah. we have any calls? We do, so awesome. let's let's take a call. Okay. Only one, but that's enough. That's One's enough. enough. Here we go. Hey, Eric and Melissa. It's Drew from Wisconsin again. Um sitting here working on another guitar and thought of a question to ask you. So what I was taught for, and the question is about string height. What I was taught was capo the first fret, check the 12th. So I put a capo on the first fret, leave it installed, and then I check over the 12th fret, the distance from the top of the fret to the bottom of the string, and I go for 90 thousandths of an inch clearance on the low E and 60 thousandths on the high E. Um, in Dan Erlewine's book, he mentions 30 seconds of an inch, but he never mentions, um, from what I could tell, whether that's with or without in capo. So I'm wondering what you do. Do you do thousands of inches? Do you do, um, 30 seconds, three 30 seconds on the low E and a 16th on the high, but I don't know. I think that was Dan's measurement, but I don't know whether he did capo or not. The capo makes a lot of sense to me because it eliminates the nut seems like it'd be more consistent, but I'm wondering what you do and uh, what your ranges are if you have, you know, customer says he wants really low or somebody who says he's bluegrass and wants to pick really hard and be buzz-free. Do you have a, um, some ranges that you use? Uh, so thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for the question. Uh, I have never capoed the first fret, and I've never really... Uh, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Maybe I've heard of it, I don't, but I don't do that for sure. Um, to me, <clears throat> I can I can see your point that it eliminates that variable, but that variable is is important um, because 
a big part of the action is how high the strings are coming off of the nut. So you want to get the nut dialed in right first and, and then measure your action. If you just capo the first fret, you're getting an, a slightly artificially low reading. Very, very slight. I mean, you know, we're just talking about a tiny bit here, but um, yeah, don't. Ca I would not capo the first fret. I, uh, I guess you could develop your own set of parameters if you, if you like that, but um, most people don't, and that's why that's why Dan Erlewine did not mention that in his book because that's an uncommon thing to do. Um, from there, uh, however you want to measure it is fine. Uh, you know, Dan Erlewine in his book mentions some different measurements. Uh, I'm, I, I, I use, uh, millimeters when I'm measuring action. Uh, you know, I'm not always a metric guy. Sometimes I use, uh, you know, inches. Sometimes I use, uh, metric, but, um, typically what I look for and I measure, generally I measure at the 14th fret instead of the 12th. And I know I'm, I'm unusual in that regard. Most people measure the 12th fret, but for, this is how I learned. And this is how I've always done it at the 14th fret, no capo, right? Uh, I measure the high E and I'm looking for, um, depending on the guitar, somewhere in the one and a half millimeter range, right? On the 14th fret, high E, one and a half millimeters. And then on the low E, somewhere just just below two millimeters. And that's what I generally do. Um, electrics, you can get away with a little lower. And a bluegrass guy on an acoustic guitar might want it a little higher. Uh, I'm looking at a website right now that has some common measurements. He's saying low action, low E, 1.6 millimeters, high E, 1.5 millimeters. I don't know. Medium action, 2.5 millimeters. That's really high action to me. He says high action is 3.5 millimeters. Wow. Yeah. So he's saying low action is somewhere around 60 thousandths. So, you know, it just depends on... It just depends on... Uh, on... on what parameters you want to follow everybody you know if you look at like fender has like a setup guide where they they tell you exactly how you should you know set your action but everything is dependent on everything else so this you know the neck has to be adjusted right the nut height the nut slots have to be adjusted right but that's generally my my parameters and this has served me well for years and years 14th fret i'm looking for one and a half millimeters on the high E and just under two millimeters on the low E. There you go. That's just a real standard guideline. Cool. So there you go. That's it on the calls. Let's do some uh, some emails, shall we? Okay. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. I'm really excited to hear your review of the amp kit. I've been looking for a similar kit myself and currently have the Mod 102 Plus tube amp kit sitting in my Amazon cart. Mm. Your timing could not be better. I would be very interested to see photos of your build on Instagram, if possible. It would be a huge help to someone new to electronics like myself. Best of luck in your new project and thank you so much for your super informative podcast. Thank you. 
Tell uh, us about your AMP kit, Eric. Well, it's not done yet, and that's why I haven't uh, been talking about it. I thought it would be done. Yeah. And it would be, except for the fact that I'm building it with my buddy Nat, and I'm... It, Nat's listening. Hi, Nat. Hi, Nat. Uh, so, not one kit. We have two kits, building them each at the same time, and uh, we did it. We bought them to build together, you know, so... Uh, we kind of have to wait until we have time to get together. Otherwise, if I could just build it in my spare time, it would have been done a week ago. Right. But it's something we've been doing together. I'm almost done. I've got everything wired up except the jacks. And, uh, yeah, I'm on, like, the last two steps. Cool. Yeah, it's really fun. I'll tell you what it is. It's a Trinity tri- Triton. T-R-I-T-O-N. It's a Trinity Triton? Yeah. I like that name. Um, it's a really cool design. It's based on like the old um, uh, small wattage, you know, single tube class, not single tube, but single power tube class A amps of the 50s like a champ. Mm-hmm. It has a 6V6 mm-hmm. power tube. But the slick thing about it is it has a switch you can throw and... You can take the 6V6 out and put in a 6L6. Whoa. So with a 6V6, it's a 5-watt amp. With a 6L6, it's a 10-watt amp. I am so impressed with all those words you just said. I know that you're really not, but it's really a cool thing. It, so it's it, it has, you know, some variables there. It's a very cool kit. I got it from Trinity Amps in, uh, in Canada. And... Uh, Here's a here's a they have a little sound clip. Let's see what this sounds like. Oh yeah. So that's that's what you have to look forward to. Well, they should have got somebody who can play it. But uh <laughs> but I'm excited about it cuz it's been a lot of fun building and uh I took it came with orange drop caps. Okay. Like three orange drop caps. Uh-huh. In listening to Skip Simmons' podcast, I know he doesn't really like those. So I put some vintage caps I have. You just happen to have laying around. Yeah, I've got a, I got boxes of capacitors. Mm-hmm. And with my handy-dandy LCR meter, I can test them to make sure they're good before I put them in my amp kit. Are you, right. try, are you selling those now? No. Uh, but Nat is using the parts provided. So it'll be an interesting... So it'll be an interesting thing to hear them side by side, even though they're going to be in different boxes and different speakers. Yeah. It'll be interesting to hear if there's any difference. So once I get it done, I'll I'll, I'll record it. And... Now, I know that you ordered the one that does, that does not have a speaker because you had your own, didn't that? I have a box and a speaker. He ordered the same exact thing but... because he already has a speaker oh, and a okay. box as well. That was my question. They're different speakers and boxes. Yeah. Okay. So the Trinity Triton. It cool. was three sixty, I think. Uh, yeah, it's. It was how much? Uh, it was three three sixty. This guy ordered the mod one hundred two plus. Let's. Oh, there's a sound clip of this. Let's hear this. Oh, that sounds great. I bet it wasn't three hundred and sixty dollars. No, it was. Uh, it was two hundred and something. Let me look. Two sixty-five with free shipping. I'm sure you paid for shipping from Canada. Well, you have to figure, you know, Canadian dollars. So the 
current the exchange rate, <laughs> the uh, extra shipping, and the okay uh, vintage capacitors. Well, congratulations on your amp kit. Anyhow, yes, thank you. Thanks for sending in your uh, your question about the amp kit. I didn't catch his name, but there you go. Thank you. Greetings, Eric and company. That's you. Thank you, Roger, for <laughs> acknowledging my existence. <laughs> Uh, another excellent podcast from you two. Regarding fretboard oil, I am using D Limoni. Limonine. Limonine. D dash Limonine. Which is orange oil from the peel. It seems to work really well. I've only been using it for a couple of years and I have not seen any bad effects. Cool. Regards, Roger. Thanks, Roger. I bet it smells really nice. Yeah, too. I'm sure it does. <clears throat> I am building a multi-guitar stand, and I am unsure of what material to use for the padding. I've heard you mention that certain types of rubber can damage certain kinds of finishes. Can you give us the skinny on what is safe and what isn't? That's from Bob. Hmm. Well, Bob, uh, I I don't know because I'm not a synthetic rubber chemist, but I, I can tell you that the cheap guitar stands can hurt your finish, so I always... You know, when you go to buy a guitar stand, don't buy the budget ones, buy the nicer ones, and they don't hurt your finish. What I would do is look at some of the nicer guitar stands and see what they're using. Uh, I, some of the cheaper guitar stands I've seen have, they just have what looks like thick surgical tubing. Right. And that can eat through lacquer, or at least I've seen it do that. My guess, and this is only a guess, Bob, don't take my word for it because it, this is only a guess, but I would I would guess neoprene. Neoprene is a, like a synthetic rubber. Right. Here's another option. Just buy the rubber and then put something over it. Oh, here's another thought. Leather. Yeah. Fur, like fluffy. Well, even just, I mean, what's just leather but skin, you know? I mean. Right. I would think that a, a nice leather wrap would well, but I would not hurt the finish. Yeah, I would say put the leather over the rubber. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's what she said. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Go ahead. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Hey, Eric and Melissa. Hope all is well. Thanks, Eric, for making the little video walkthrough of your workspaces that you posted on Instagram. That oh, was yeah. cool to see. But Melissa still reigns supreme on Instagram. I know. Well, here's the problem. She's... Very pretty to look at, and I'm. Why do I not. reign supreme on Instagram? What does that mean? It means that you have cool pictures, and I don't. What he's saying is your Instagram is better than mine is. Well, thanks. And I would I would guess that it's partially because you're nice to look at. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, so I've learned how to do a decent fret level slash crown. Are you reading a question polish. now? Yes. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> You are on one tonight. But I've not yet attempted a refret. I have at least one cheap neck I'd be willing to mess up for the sake of learning, and I'd love a couple pro tips to help someone like me make their first attempt. What are the most essential tools I'll need? For instance, do I really need those flush ground fret pullers from the luthier supply companies, or will regular nippers work? Can it be done well with just fretting hammer, or do I need a press? What are the most critical steps? How do I avoid screwing everything up? 
Thanks. That's from Brannon from the cornfields of Indiana, where reliable guitar scientists are few <laughs> and far between. Mm, Brannon. They're allergic to corn. That's not true. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm just trying to think of what, what, what I would recommend here. Essential fret tools. Um, those fret pullers look like your ordinary, everyday, you know, run-of-the-mill, over-the-counter nipper. But they're not. Can you say nipper like that again? Nipper. Thank you. They are ground flush, right? Uh, so that when you go to pull the fret, the the claws of the nipper can really get in there under the fret and pull it up. If you tried to do that with just a nipper you bought down at Harbor Freight or Ace Hardware, um, you would not have any luck there. So yes, you do need, in my opinion, the expensive luthier supply company uh, fret nippers to pull the frets. To cut them, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I guess you could use, uh, I guess you could improvise to cut the frets because it's not, that's not as critical as the fret pullers, but I would order the, I would order the fret cutting nippers as well. I bet you that Stumac has a refret kit. I'm sure they do. It probably has 50% essentials and 50% like weirdness, like fret erasers and stuff. What's a fret eraser? I don't know. I just keep seeing pictures of it in their emails they send me. Okay. Um, the press is easier. So if you want to if you want to start out with the Arbor press, you'll have better results right out of the gate because it is easier. Um you will need um an accurate way to bend the fret wire. You know, you can do it by hand, but it's tricky. So, you know, I mean, we're looking at I mean, this is starting to rack up to 3-400 worth of tools here. Right. And a refret is three or four hundred dollars, you know. Yeah, but most if you shops. do a dozen of them. So, yeah, if you're gonna do, if this is something you're gonna get into, then by all means, these these are tools that will pay for themselves, and it'll be fun, right? Right. Uh, you didn't use a press for a lot of years, though. It's true, I did not. Um, if you have a drill press, you can just buy the attachment that goes into the chuck mm-hmm. and use that. So that's nice. Or you can, if you want to go on the cheap, um, I think you can go get an, an Arbor Press down at Harbor Freight for, for you know, 60 bucks or something instead of the... Yeah, I have one of those, and it's not, that's not, a, it wouldn't be, it's worth it to buy the expensive Arbor yeah. Press. Yeah, you're probably right. It doesn't, need, it's not even spring-loaded, that one. Like, it doesn't jump back up. It just flops around like yeah. a fish. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look up just real quickly. Oh, I have a squeak, squeaky, <laughs> squeaky microphone s- stand there. Pardon me. Uh, I'm going to look up Stumac. Mm-hmm. I think, I feel like we've talked about this before. Stumac fretting kit. I'm sure we have. Oh, yeah. Stumac essential fretting tools. $262. And it just has, it has the hammer. Yeah. It's got hammer, nippers. What else does it have? Hammer, nippers, files. Uh, it does not have... So this is not a refret tool kit. 
because oh. it doesn't have the fret pullers. It's just a fretting tool set. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see if there's a refret kit. Probably not. Stumac. No, not really. Yeah, it it's one of those things where um there's there's so many different tools that you can use and so many people have different uh ways of doing it. So, you know, you could start out with the hammer and uh it'll just take a lot more practice than the with the arbor. With the arbor, you you can probably get pretty good results almost immediately because it's it is a lot easier. So, but it's going to be a lot more expensive too. So think about that. Thanks, Brandon. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Loving the podcast. I am a first-time contributor. Two questions for Melissa. Oh, dear. I am a pedal steel player, and most people's kit contain, consists of a bag with five long pockets to hold the legs and pull rods when the steel is disassembled. The seam on the bottom of mine started to rip, so I threw some three-inch duct tape on there for a quick fix. Now it's gross, and taking it off would clearly leave a lot of residue. Hmm. Anything I can do to remove the residue if I pull off the tape to sew up the seam? Uh, and he sent pictures. There's a second question. I'm going to answer them one at a time since I'm reading them. I, I was trying to pull up the pictures for you, but I've already d deleted the email. I forwarded it to you, though. Did you see the pictures? Yeah, I did see the pictures. Um, the The bag for your steel kit is... It's kind of like, it almost looks like vinyl. I'm sure it's leather, but it looks like the finishes, it looks like that. I don't know what it like is. shiny? Yeah. Um, and I would assume that you can just take it off with like goo gone or something because that finish doesn't look like it's going to let anything in. Mm -hmm. But I would try that on a very small part of it to make sure it's not going to like melt the finish or something but i'd be surprised if it's leather it's probably tolex yeah uh yeah and it could be i don't know what it is it it looked like some sort of vinyl but it could have been leather i don't know to get uh sticker residue off st sticky residue from tape one really good thing you can use is naphtha yeah but again just try it on a small spot before you start and uh yeah see how it goes um, secondly, my fiance has a briefcase she loves and our cat recently took to it as a scratching post and did some damage. Anything we can do to fix this? We, uh, we're keen to polish our shoes and such. Maybe carefully cut the burrs off with an X-Acto and polish it up with a close match. Best wishes from Nashville, Will and Ann Malin. Ann Malin rhymes with Van Halen. I like that. Nice. Um, as for that, the, I don't... I don't do a lot of repairs. I just don't know that much about it, to be honest. Hmm. Uh, what I would do is just, uh, yeah, maybe cut off anything hanging out, hanging off any burrs, and then mm -hmm. oil it and see how that goes. I don't know. It's The damage is there. It's it's not going to get covered up. Or, you kind of can't reverse it. Right. I took, when I was younger, I had a pair of boots that I just loved so much. They were like, they were really shiny, patent leather motorcycle boots mm -hmm. but they had cracked mm -hmm. or leather and i went into the shoe shop and said can can this be repaired and he he laughed <laughs> it's cracked it's just cracked leather it can't be repaired yeah and i felt dumb sorry he laughed at you that's all right 
you can you can probably make the cat scratches to uh, you know kind of blend in, but they'll they'll never disappear. They're yeah. there forever. Yeah, bummer. Sorry, buddy. Next. Hi, Eric. As a tool shy but poor guitar player, any tips about adjusting truss rods? I'm pretty good at sighting necks to see if they are straight, but I'm gun shy about turning the rod. Too many horror stories about snapped truss rods, I suppose. Which way do I turn and how much is too much? Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. I didn't really listen to your question because I'm thinking about your first sentence. As a tool shy but poor guitar player... (laughs) He's he's not. A is he saying he's, he's a poor he's, guitar player, or is he saying that he is a guitar player who happens to not be rich? He's a guitar player without much money. Okay, I would assume. And so he doesn't want to spend the money to have. That's correct. But yeah, his when guitar I, worked on when I first I read know. it, I thought he's also he's not only is he tool shy, but also a poor guitar player. <laughs> Ted, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're just dissecting your. And I haven't diagrammed a sentence for a hundred years. Okay. Tell us about a truss rod. Uh, any tips about adjusting truss rods? Well, he says he's good at sighting necks to see if they're straight, but he's gun shy about turning the rod. You know, it's something that a lot of um, horror stories are told about, you know, when uh, there's almost this like mythical legend about the truss rod, like don't mess with your truss rod because if you turn it too far it could snap and then your guitar's ruined well uh snapping a truss rod is actually pretty rare i mean you would really have to torque that thing to, to make it snap you really you really have to be cranking on that thing um a, a half turn or a full turn one way or the other if the rod is moving freely, you know, it doesn't take too much. You can tell when something's getting really tight. Right. You can feel how tight it is. You're like, oh, this is going to snap. If your truss rod feels like it's so tight that it might snap, then don't adjust it. But, yeah, sight the neck. See if it's straight. Give it a quarter turn one way or the other. Sight it again. See what happened. You can do this, Ted. You can totally do this. I don't know what kind of guitar he has. He doesn't say. He probably has several. Yeah. Although he is a poor guitar player. <laughs> so maybe not. Let me Just ask Just the you one this. Epiphone. It, on any guitar, if you tighten it or loosen it, does it bend it one way or the other? I mean, is it is it standardized across all guitars? Or? Al- almost uh, al- almost 100%. There, there, there are rare guitars where the truss rod is left hand thread but it's so it's so rare that you would have to be working on guitars for a living to run into that so it, say you have a, a neck with a back bow which way do you turn that truss rod nut uh it has a back bow uh-huh. you're going to loosen it okay if if it has a forward bow you're going to tighten it yeah you're going to tighten it well there you go but this is tuned to pitch with the strings you're going to use right the mm-hmm. same the gauge the tuning you're going to use, the gauge of strings you're going to use. If you have a neck that has a dip and then a hump, like an like an S curve, mm-hmm. an S-shaped curvature, the truss rod's not really going to help you. Right. If you have a neck that's twisted, then often what oftentimes what that'll look like is it you look down the low E side and it has a hump. Mm-hmm. You look down the high E side and it has a dip. Right, so the right. two sides don't match up. That that's how you know you have a twisted neck. The truss rod's not really going to help you there. So, 
if you have a very even bow or a or a very even hump throughout the whole neck. That's what the truss rod is for. Is to you can adjust that and and uh, straighten out the neck. Cool. Yeah. And so a quarter turn is all you just want to start with that and see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Quarter turn at a time, then look at the neck and see what's happening. Depending on what kind of guitar you have, it may be a hex wrench, mm-hmm. and it may be a, uh, a little socket. Cool. Nut. You Interesting. Know. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ted. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Liz here from Emerald City Guitars, located in the heart of historic Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle, Washington. We are one of the world's premier vintage guitar shops, going strong for over 22 years. Specializing in the most rare, the funkiest, and most collectible vintage and pre-owned electric guitars, acoustic guitars, amplifiers, and more. We cater to anyone and everyone, from the guy next door to collectors and famous rock stars. Not only do we pay top dollar for used gear, we also offer trade-ins and consignment. We also have in-house repair and offer free appraisals. We have a variety of social media accounts that we post our goods daily. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at EC Guitars. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and see our daily episodes of the featured guitar pick of the day and reality of Emerald City Guitars shows. Give us a call to chat in person at 206-382-0231 and visit our online store at www.emeraldcityguitars.com. If you're at all curious about my guitar repair services or my custom guitars, you can check out my websites, ericdaw.com, that's more the repair side of things, that's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. I would love to help you with that tricky repair or restoration. You know, maybe you don't have somebody in your area, or maybe you've got a very valuable guitar that you don't want to trust to just anybody. And the guitars that I make are at pinupcustomguitars.com. That's pinup, like pinup girl, P-I-N-U-P. I offer worldwide service uh, on repairs. People send me repairs from all over the country and, uh, well, even internationally. And I definitely send guitars all over the world. So if you're curious about what I do and want to learn more, that's how to check it out. ericdaw.com and pinupcustomguitars.com. Hello, Eric and Melissa. I am an amateur luthier, and I'm preparing to make an electric guitar for a friend of mine. The problem is that he has a bunch of ideas for what he wants, but no real reasons for them. Hmm. The biggest sticking point is he wants a chambered body. I asked if this was because he was concerned about weight, but no, he'd heard it helped with resonance. If the sound from an electric guitar is mostly a matter of magnets and wire, I'm not sure that this makes a lot of sense. Even if there could be some sort of benefit under the right, carefully engineered conditions, I don't think that a one-off instrument will result in that unless I somehow get very lucky. Finally, I am concerned that chambering the body will willy-nilly could adversely affect sustain. Do you have any useful rules of thumbs here? Rules of thumb here. Thanks a lot, Richard. Yes, Richard, I do. I have a very good rule of thumb. It is... uh, Don't do it. uh, A customer like this (laughs) should be told to go away. (laughs) Uh, No, I... uh, 
there's a different there's a, a number of different ways you could think about this and I don't know what kind of instrument you're building um I'm assuming it would otherwise be a solid body guitar just chambered right, right? so they make chambered les pauls mm-hmm. uh they make chambered uh telecasters like a telecaster thin line, thin line you know but the whole point of those is to make a lighter guitar some people feel it makes a more resonant guitar some people feel that it kills the resonance um but here's the deal it just varies from guitar to guitar it, it it's it's uh and like you said on a on an electric guitar it's mostly about magnets and and pickups and hardware you know so um i don't know i mean if you if 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 you want to build if you want to build a chambered body go for it uh but i don't think it's going to change i don't think it's going to change a lot of the tone unless you really hollowed the thing out i mean yeah it de- it just depends it depends you know you like some guitars like a 335 are hollow on the sides but it has a center block down the middle right um other guitars like a 330 is almost entirely hollow so it's more like an arch top yeah it's a more like an arch top and then you know like i said you've got like telecaster thin lines you know right um but <clears throat> A Telecaster thin line still just sounds like a Telecaster to me. Right. It's not It's not like some huge night and day difference. Is a thin line only, does it have a solid block in the middle and then yeah. hollowed out on both sides? Well, it's solid down the middle except for the oh. pickup cavities, you know. Right. Uh, but then like the control pin, oh, okay, the thin line's on the other side. The, the F-hole's on the other yeah. side, right? Yeah. But there's only one F-hole. Uh, yeah, it has an F-hole on one side, and then on the other side where there would be an F-hole, there's a big pickguard thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was just trying to picture it. Yeah, I don't really have much advice here, Richard. Find a new friend, Richard. Ow, ouch. <laughs> ouch. Sorry. Uh, dear Fred Files, I'm not a luthier, but I am a leather worker. Why? Wow. Why is this person I don't know. listening? We're getting, well, probably, these, these are probably people who follow your instagram well i hope it's not. cool God. uh i mostly make boots by the way that's what i want to do that's cool that's what i want to do eventually i want to make shoes and boots i mostly make boots and deal with finishes and stains on leather all the time in the last episode you were talking about how to knock the shine back on a leather guitar strap a couple of things you didn't mention that might be useful Deglazing fluid is the first thing I reach for. Try a little on an in- first on an inconspicuous spot, but this is what I use to strip off wax and acrylic finishes, whether on chrome or veg tan leather. That's good to know. I have some of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, second thing to try is oh, I I had you look up the pronunciation. Oxalic. Oxalic. Oxalic acid. I've never heard of this. Uh, be careful with this. It can lighten the leather as well. I mostly use it for stains, but it can remove finish as well. Be careful with it. Oxalic acid is also known as wood bleach. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, yes, making a guitar strap for a neck divey guitar that attaches to the headstock, like on an old-fashioned acoustic, works well. I have one on my double cut. 
And now a question. When tooling a pickguard for a guitar with a swimming pool route, what would you do? I assume a person would have to glue the finished leather onto something, but what? Plastic? Old flattened out beer cans? Because I can get a bunch of those. Easy. <laughs> Us too. Uh, I enjoy the, sp- the podcast. Spider. Thanks, Spider. Thanks, Spider. Um, yeah, there's. Uh, I've made two pickguards in my career. One I just made out of super thick leather, and it was fine, but it warped. Obviously, it's leather. The second one I made for TJ Osborne, I glued it to a pit guard. Yeah, just to a a thin, single-ply pit guard. Yeah, and that makes it easy, too, because you know that pit guard's going to fit the guitar. Well, yeah, it's already, it's like a pre-made template. Yeah. So um, what I did was I tooled the leather big. You know, I just left it wide and then I cut it a little big and then I glued it to the pit guard and then I cut it to the pit guard. Yeah. And then it fit perfectly and it was beautiful. Yeah. And I just used contact cement, you know, weldwood contact cement for that. But I'm sure there's something that would be better suited, but it worked great. Is there a specific glue that people use for leather? Yeah, they use barge. I've never tried it. I don't know what it is. I'm pretty sure it's just contact cement. Mm. I don't know. See, I'm flying by the seat of my pants with my leather work. I know what I'm doing with what I do, but I just, I don't know. I don't know much about stuff. Well, this has turned into a podcast about leather. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Thank you for listening, Spider. I'm confused about why you listen, but I'm glad you do. Because it's fun. Yeah. Everybody should listen. Everybody. Hi, Melissa and Eric. Listening to you talk about seeing Dwight Yoakam on the podcast brought back fond memories of seeing him in a tiny club. DJ DJ... Excuse me, J.C. Dobbs in Philadelphia back in the days of guitars, Cadillacs, etc., etc. Must have been spring of 1986. That was right at the beginning of his career. That is so cool. I was was 10. Yeah, I was negative four. You were not born. (laughs) Uh, It was a stunning show in a tiny space with only about 40 or 50 other fans. Just wow. Man. That's cool. My question for the show. I have a beautiful original 65 Epiphone Crestwood Custom whose seventh fret marker inlay is separating from the fretboard. The frets are factory low, fretless wonderish. So playing certain notes slash strings below the problem marker results in buzzing from string marker contact. Mm. Pictures attached. So how would you glue the marker back down? What glue would you use? How would you clamp? Any other tips? Thanks, as always, you're doing fantastic work, and I always look forward to a new episode. You two rock. Frank from Philadelphia. Thanks, Frank. A beautiful guitar, by the way. Just a stunning color. The thing is gorgeous. He sent me a picture. And, uh, man, 65 Epiphone Crestwood Custom. I, I don't know what color that is, but it's it was like a... It, it looks like the finish has yellowed and turned maybe what used to be a blue metallic blue mm-hmm. into a green i don't know what it i don't oh, know cool. it's just beautiful i love it uh and really cool big oval shaped fret markers um i wonder are those are they coming loose so like if would you be able to get them out in one piece because that's what i would want to do if you can get it out and clean up the old glue then you should be able to to glue it back 
in and it'll be flush with the fingerboard again. Right. Uh, if it's shrinking enough that it's real fragile and brittle, um, prying that out might be out of the question because it's going to be uh, so brittle you might break it. But mm-hmm. um, you might be able to heat it up a little bit to get it out. If you can get it out, it would be great. Clean up the old glue from the bottom of the fret marker and clean up the old glue in the uh, in the fingerboard. And then uh, I would probably, you know, I don't use super glue for many things, but I would probably use super glue on this. For any particular reason? Just because it's a fretboard marker and it's just it's just an easy instant glue. You know, you could just mm-hmm. put it in there, hold it down. You wouldn't have to clamp it. Oh, okay. Um, what if he can't get it out? What, it, what would you do if getting it out is not an option? If it if you can push on it and and make it flush with the fingerboard just by putting pressure on it, mm-hmm. then you then you don't have to get it out. You could just push it down mm-hmm. and seep super glue under it. Right. But if if pushing it down if doesn't make it go lower, mm-hmm. then you're gonna kind of have to get it out so you can get yeah clean up all the old glue. That makes sense. Well. Good luck, Frank. Might be kind of tricky because yeah. it's an it's an unusual f- f- fingerboard marker. It's just a like a giant oval. I feel like that's an easy shape to get out, rather than like a, a square well, might be. Harder it's not to... about the shape; it's about how brittle the material is. Right, but I mean, if 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 it's a rectangular shape, it, the brittleness would affect corners easier. So squares are more brittle than ovals. This is interesting. I didn't know. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I didn't know these things. This is why Melissa's here because she. Uh, she this fills is why us I in. can't listen to the show. <laughs> no, you have a good point. I can see that because you know where it comes to corners, mm-hmm. that the corners would be more brittle. I just, I totally understand what you're saying. Not more brittle, but just easier, more prone to breaking because yes. of the shape. Well, that's what brittle means. I'm saying, yes, it would be more prone to breaking on the corners. Yeah. I, you, you make a good point. It's a good thing they're oval because they'll probably come out easier than a big rectangle. Okay. She's right. Thanks, Frank. Hi, Dawes. I'm doing more electronics work today, work in guitars lately, and I'm wondering about grounding. Hmm. Some builders run individual ground soldered to the back of each pot, and some don't. What's the right way? Or I guess I should ask Eric, what would Eric do? I've heard Hmm. that if you run a ground wire to each pot, you can end up with ground loops that can cause excessive hum. Is this truth or myth? Hmm. Thanks, Leo. Oh, Leo, like Leo Fender. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure it's Leo Fender. No. <laughs> Is it? Yes. Leo, thanks for the question. Um Yeah. Gr- grounding is important. You know, your switch, your pots, your jack should all be grounded. <clears throat> it depends on the guitar and how it's made. Um, you know, if you look at like for example, a Telecaster the switch and the pots are mounted to that metal control plate, right? Mm-hmm. That's a ground. Oh. So there's no need, and you you really don't need to, and Fender doesn't, 
run an individual ground wire from the switch to the pot to the other pot. There's no ground wire there because the pots are grounded by being tightened down to the metal control plate. Right. So then you run a ground wire to the jack because it's not grounded to that plate, mm -hmm. right? But if you look inside many Les Pauls, um, they don't have a ground plate in there. Some do, but the old ones did not. So it's like an old Gibson. They run an individual ground wire, like a bare wire, in between each pot and into the switch. So it's all grounded. Uh, if there was a ground plate and then you also ran a wire, um, I, you don't need to worry about ground loops because we're dealing with a passive circuit here. It's not like an amp that there's a... That, that is a myth, but there's a shred of truth to it. You know, like if you're building an amplifier or a radio or some kind of powered electronic device, you do have to, audio device, you do have to worry about ground loops. But inside a guitar, this is a passive circuit. We don't need to worry about ground loops. Ground loops are a thing, but you don't need to worry about it in a guitar. So if you want to be redundant, and some people do, you can run you can run a ground wire in between all the pots even if there is a grounding plate right like mm -hmm. if you look at the if you look at un, under a strat pit guard usually there's either foil or a plate there and again the switch the pots they're grounded because they're bolted to the to the metal but a lot of builders uh will still run a wire in between the pots, you know, the back of the pot, the metal, the big metal housing right. of the pot. Right. It's your ground, right? And you want to make sure everything's grounded because if it's not, you're going to have wicked hum. So it's probably better to be redundant than not. But that being said, I, I don't. Like if I'm building a Telecaster-style guitar, I don't run a ground wire between the back of the pots because... I I use a you know a lock washer on the pots and I tighten them down really good. The only way they're ever going to come ungrounded or have a ground problem is if the pots come loose from the metal plate. And if the pots come loose from the metal plate, my my hope is that the player would tighten the enough. tighten the pots. You never know. Yeah, but uh, I typically don't. Um, I typically don't do redundant grounding on those, but yeah, it's something to think about, but yeah, don't worry about ground loops. Cool. Thanks, Leo. Hi, Eric and Melissa. I've been having intonation problems like mad, mostly on my A string, and I haven't been able to solve it until I found your podcast. In an earlier episode, you talked about round core strings and how they can cause intonation problems. So I thought, huh, maybe that's the problem. Mm. I looked at my empty pack of DR Pure Blues strings, and wouldn't you know, round core. Yep. That sounds like uh, a small sect of hardcore music. Round, round core? Round core. It's just for fat yeah. kids. Are you in a hardcore or a round core? Round core. Yeah. I've tried some Hexcore Diodario strings and problem solved. Hexcore is the their rival. <laughs> That's their rival genre? <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> 
I tried some hex cordiadario strings and problem solved. Thanks for helping the helpless masses. Yeah. Even my tech couldn't figure this one out. You are a wizard, and I will keep listening for more wisdom. <laughs> Thanks, Sean in Arizona. Thanks, Sean. When I, when I first came across that problem, I tender so many years ago, 15 years ago, yep, that drove me nuts. I could not figure out why... I was having so many intonation problems on people's guitars. But it happened when the DR round core string craze started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The round cores. The round core craze. That does it for this show. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. If you want to participate in the show, you can call 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there, and we'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to go to my website, ericdaw.com, that's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com, and click the contact link. We'll use your question or comment as part of the show. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Good night.